Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. This is our first episode. And I'm Rob Fay in Portland, Oregon, and I'm joined by my buddy, Roman Sifkin. In All the way in Astoria. City. Yes, we're in opposite Queens, coasts. To be exact. <laughs> exactly. Of course, of course, the famed location of uh, Archie yes. Bunker in uh, All in the Family. But it's things, east, things, east, things east meets west over here. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, probably every month or so, uh, we're going to be talking books, um, sometimes maybe around one book, sometimes around types of authors. Um, we'll see. But today we're going to talk about a book that came out, I think, in the spring. Um, it's called Trip. Psychedelics, Alienation, and Change by Tao Lin, who is a, a novelist. And you and I actually had the pleasure of actually seeing right. him in Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon, a few months ago, and we saw him at, uh, at Powell's. So, you know, this is a book about psychedelics, and, and you know, that's probably the, the first thing to kind of think about is there seems to be like a, a resurgence of psychedelics uh, in the culture, and um, which is kind of surprising because you know uh, psychedelics had their uh, had their day, so to speak, in, in the sixties and seventies, and then the door. Really well, it, it went, it went, it, it went underground. Yeah, it went well, underground, and you know the, the focus was kind of shifted a little yeah. bit. Uh, but now things are definitely sprouting, shall we say, <laughs> out of the ground. Yeah, <laughs> I mean what. I mean, and also like uh, drugs, drug literature or literature about drugs goes back to, I mean, you can probably give us a bit of a rundown. I mean, Thomas De Quincey, yeah. Confessions of an Opium Eater, English Opium Eater, yeah. goes yeah. back to what, 19th century? or um, And then you've got, you've got um, was it Byron who was also? Was he well, a, I think, I think the, was it Laudanum, that uh, the opium derivative was quite popular. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure how far back that goes. But yeah, yeah, drug literature is, is definitely very rich. I mean, there's even American stuff going, going back to the 19th century. Uh, Fitzhugh, I believe Fitzhugh is his either first name or last name. I don't have my notes here about him, but uh, he, he, yeah. um, he wrote extensively about hashish. In fact, I believe Tim Leary's library or something like that is called the Fitzhugh. I, I don't have the details about that, but you know, the literature does go back, uh, even in America, uh, quite yeah. a bit. Uh, totally. And, and then we're talking about, um, you know, to kind of the setup is we eventually get uh, the doors mm-hmm. of perception with uh, Aldous Huxley, which is, was that an investigation of, of LSD or was this a... I believe, I believe it was not LSD. Uh, that book was, um, um, I believe it was, um, well, now I'm, I'm blanking, um, the, the psychedelic that gives you all the color perceptions. Uh, uh, but it wasn't LSD. I think LSD yes. was a little bit later on for, for Huxley. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. um, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on this, on this chemical. Yeah. Well, right, yeah, right. That's why they have the internet, so we'll... <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we work our way up to, there's the beat generation, of course. Mescaline, and, and, mescaline. That was mescaline, know, yes. Uh, mescaline, totally, yes. Um, and then we get up to the beats in the 50s, and you've got... Um, Allen Ginsberg and Jack, Jack Kerouac. And of course, Burroughs, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and of course, William Burroughs. I mean, I suppose he's probably the principal sort of drug literature guy with, with the novel Junkie. Um, but it, it, it feels like psychedelics sort of 
were pushed underground, as you said. Um, they were removed from clinical studies because, I mean, Dr. Tim Leary was was actually a oh. pioneer in uh, a prison in Walpole in Massachusetts, and and having good results with uh, um, recidivism rates and, and things like this. And, and the door really was shut. Well, they were, they were made illegal. They were basically made illegal. And Tao Lin actually has yeah. uh, does talk quite a bit about. Uh, why they were made illegal uh, in this new book, um, yeah, and that that's, that effectively yeah, stopped all research, and that's that's why it went kind of underground, um, yeah, and and wasn't really you know researched by by so-called legitimate researchers, uh, but it was still you yeah. know it was still definitely there. Yeah, and you know that in, in thinking about Lynn's book and, and going through it is the part that really kind of jumped out at me was. He's obviously a, a younger guy. I'm, I'm thinking he's around his mid-30s. Yeah. And um, the thing about the book that's interesting is that um, there isn't a lot of romanticism that is associated with, with drugs. He, he sort of describes how he has kind of gone down a dark alley with, uh, with Adderall, right? And right. He's kind of been using that to kind of manage anxiety. And, um, you know, Tao Lin is... is there's a lack of awe, and I think he actually talks about that mm -hmm. too, that, um, you know, a, a kind of flat, unexcited view of life. And it's so interesting because I think you and I, we grew up reading the beat writers, and, and there was a sense of excitement in life, and, and drugs were part of that, right? There would be the excessiveness of, of joy. Um, and Tao Lin really comes at this from a broken person, and he, he discovers psychedelics through Terrence McKenna, who you can probably kind of... Yeah, well... Uh, everybody might not well, know Well, Terrence, I think, I think people who would be interested in this book uh, would probably know about Terrence McKenna, um, except maybe yeah. the younger crowd, and this is actually a very good introduction to Terrence McKenna. Uh, in fact, this book yeah. can be called, you know, Terrence McKenna Introduction, an introduction. Uh, yeah, it, it is sort of a little bit like my book report about... <laughs> investigating right right in fact you, you know, Tao Lin wrote a, a, a column uh, called the Tao of Terence uh, uh, I forget for which magazine uh, but that was kind of his sort of preparation for this larger exploration of McKenna's ideas um, but it's in interesting to note that uh, that Tao Lin hasn't really done any psychedelics before the age of 27 which I think is yeah, significant you know a lot of people from the 60s you know the older hippie generation you know, they were dropping acid in their teens. Yes. Uh, and so I think, I think it's quite significant that when you try it in your late 20s, it's, I think it's a quite a different perspective. And also, you know, to put it in context, as far as Tao Lin goes, uh, I, I was not really, I mean, I was aware of Tao Lin uh, for a while, but I didn't really read any of his books until Taipei. And yeah. when I picked up Taipei, it was a really bleak book it was very yes. it was almost zombie like in both yeah. its prose and its content yes. um you know almost this robotic non-feeling yes. reportage about you know these strange experiences strange relationships mm -hmm. and and the usage of of these you know pharmaceuticals like Adderall and Xanax and even like MDMA um which is a you know kind of a speedy speedy drug a lot of you know some people call it psychedelic but it's 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 not really a psychedelic uh but that whole book was really just was was a downer <laughs> yeah and 
you know, when I, when I when I start reading Trip, I realized that it could also be called Better Chemistry, yeah. because he really did. He switched from bad chemistry uh, putting into his body to uh, much better chemicals that he was putting into his body. Uh, and that includes not just psychedelics, by the way, because the psychedelic thing, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more later, uh, opened this whole world of you know healthier being, of uh, being aware of the pesticides around us, of the pollution, both both uh, you know physical and mental pollution that we experience every day as, as modern people. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of really it really broke him open. It kind of it's, it it left Tao Lin. It, 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 gave him a, it gave him a lift out of this morass that he was in, or seemingly in, uh, you know, just based on, on, on Taipei and in his own writings. And even in, in the book Trip, which he discusses how he tried to quit uh, Xanax and Adderall and those you know, bad, bad drugs, quote-unquote, yes. um, and how difficult it was. And you know, he, he mentions recovery, and he puts it in quotes as recovery, meaning that he actually started using more Adderall and Xanax, Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while before he started using less and then it, it, again more again and then less again so it was this this kind of back and forth um, of, of him sort of easing out of that that th- those bad chemicals and into uh, more you know quote unquote good chemicals like cannabis and, and psychedelics in general yeah you know and, and before we kind of uh, push you know deeper into the book trip like you're speaking of Taipei and you know, I think I was a little more impressed with the book than you were, and I and I agree the the prose is kind of flat and robotic and zombie-like, but I almost felt like there was a kind of, I guess I liked it because when I read it, I felt like he had a bit of the zeitgeist that was happening for perhaps a certain millennial, border millennial type sort of. That's person. a good point. Yeah, and that's a um, that's that's a good point. Yeah, he was describing and, what what's happening. It's not like he it, was really. Yeah. Inventing things, and it almost feels like, um, you know, when I think about, uh, we talked about the romantics, and then we talked about the beats, and their experience with drugs was very much like, almost um, earthy, you know. And and in the book Taipei, there is a character who you know seems to resemble Ta- uh, Tao Lin, uh, who you know who takes drugs, but who takes LSD, but it's it's again there's this. Uh, the impact on him as a person is is so minimal, and it, it's done in such a pedestrian way. Like uh, there's a scene where um, the character, uh, the, the narrator Paul and his girlfriend Erin are in Taipei, uh, where the, uh, the main character's uh, family is from, and they take LSD and they go down to a McDonald's, and, and you know to to get you uh, an idea of kind of the writing of Taipei. Here's just a quick scene, and to me, this just sort of exemplifies both like flat prose and just this lack of romance about things. It says, mm-hmm. at the apartment around 1.30 a.m., they got a charger, and Paul wrote a note to his mother that he and Aaron were at McDonald's or downstairs. They somehow didn't remember they were on LSD, so didn't discern and attribute the effects of LSD until, on their way to a different McDonald's, crossing the street, Paul realized he was repeatedly becoming conscious of things in media res like the information he received from sensory perception wasn't being processed immediately, but at a delay sometimes, resulting in microseconds to seconds of partial or functioning unconsciousness. And then they go into McDonald's and, and there are these just observations of, of what we all know in a, in a bland uh, corporate restaurant. But 
there's no romance there. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, it seems to reflect, I don't know, a, a technological, alienated state of being. And I think, certainly I feel that way when I spend too much time online. You know? Right, or just in general, really, yeah. in today in, in modern society, and yeah. that's what that's that's what that's where Trip kind of picks up, and yeah. you know, from Taipei saying this is this is this is what I was, and here's how I'm changing, yeah, uh, because of these substances and because of a different world view, uh, because remember, it's not just the drugs. I mean, you can take all the drugs in the world, and yet they will affect you. But if you don't have a context in which to re, re- sort of reintegrate them back into your daily life. Then it's 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 not really a waste. It's just it's not going to have the same meaning for you. You're not going to be able to extract a lot of meaning, mind meaning out of it. Yeah. And I think, I think I and I'll give uh, Taolin props for this. Uh, this book, it's nonfiction, of course, but it's really it's really his attempt to understand. And he mentions this in the book. It's his attempt to understand what he's been going through in the past few years with these new drugs, better chemistry, his exposure to McKenna. And he wrote this book in a way for him to understand that ex- those experiences better. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely a move away from this alienation, this existen- existentialism, as, as he calls it. Um, I believe it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not really existentialism as as most philosophers would understand it. But it's you know it's it's sort of the common meaning of ex- ex- existentialism, which is good enough for us. Yeah. Um, and and uh, again, if I if I could just from trip. Um, I think here's a quick, a few sentences that sort of exemplifies what you're talking about. Um, and again, this is talking about when he was in adolescence. He says, you know, uh, when, I was in, uh, when I was 13 or 14, I was chronically not fascinated by existence. Uh-huh. I, have that, which, I, have that, uh, I have that underlined too. <laughs> yeah, which, though often amusing and poignant, did not feel wonderful or profound, but tedious mm-hmm. and uncomfortable and troubling. Life did seem mysterious, but increasingly only in a blunt, cheap, slightly deadpan, somehow unintriguing manner. And, and I also noticed that when we saw him at Powell's, he actually read uh, from that passage. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, the the uh, the other viewpoint might just be that this is a Taiwanese American kid growing up in Florida, uh, where you know in the early '80s, uh, probably bullied probably uh, misunderstood uh, in a suburban, bland context, didn't appreciate what he had to offer. This is a kid that was kicked around. And, and so should, should his take on psychedelics, alienation, the culture, um, really have any larger meaning? Or is this just like a, a TED talk? from, you know, some of the yeah. personal experience. You know? Yeah, you know, it didn't, I mean, the book is very, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's longer than a TED Talk. There's a lot of stuff in it that a, talk, a TED Talk wouldn't be able to really fit into it. And I, yeah. and I think it's it's relatively successful, this book. It's, it, does, it didn't strike me as, as this kind of like, you know, kind of this bland sort of reinterpretation or rehashing of Terrence McKenna and, and all the, the hoopla and the excitement around psychedelics. Right. Um, it, it really felt like an honest exploration of what the hell is happening to him, you know? Um, and, and especially coming from this from this whole Taipei kind of perspective and, and this, this zombie-like, uh, you know, toxic existence that he's been living, um, it really it really seems to have awakened him, you know? And uh, it, it, again, I'm, I'm reaching for language here, and this is part of the problem because... 
because you know the, the whole psychedelic experience is not really amenable to uh, yeah. to being described. It resists description, um, and Lynn talks about quite a, a bit about that actually uh, to his credit. Um, here I have a little quote yes. from McKenna that he quotes, uh, that Lynn quotes, um, and McKenna's talking about DMT trips. DMT being basically the the strongest psychedelic that we we have access to. Um, language, here's the quote, language cannot describe it accurately. Therefore, I will inaccurately describe it. The rest is now lies. <laughs> Which I just love. It's, it's probably the truest, the truest statement about any kind of description of a psychedelic experience that you can have. It's lies. Now, however, having said that, it's, uh, you know, we, we, we can't do without these lies. We have to, you know, we're, 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 we're humans that use our reasoning and our logos in language to make sense of things. And so it's kind of part of us. And so even though it's distorted and sort of, quote-unquote, not true, um, it's sort of the best that we have as far as description. Um, maybe music comes closer, you know, psychedelic music comes closer to sort of giving you that, that little taste of experience. But language can come close as well. Yeah. Um, and I think... I think Lynn does a, a, a pretty good job of, first of all, admitting it, that it's, it's impossible to really bring back uh, anything, that, anything that really has rational meaning from these experiences. Uh, however, having said that, he does bring back things that do give meaning uh, in certain ways. Um, and so that's, that's commendable. It's not easy to write about psychedelic experiences. Uh, believe me, I've tried. <laughs> it's not easy. Because everything you say is just yeah, and, and rings I, false. I want to pick up on that one idea. And, and again, I'm, I'm so excited. We, we seem to have uh, checked off similar parts of the book. That's why we're, that's why we're doing this, this uh, podcast, <laughs> folks. Um, exactly. Right? Roman and I have been friends for, for some time. Um, but the whole, the whole issue of logos, I think, is worth examining. And not everyone might be familiar with kind of the idea that when he, um, in the introduction, he talks about a few of the, the ideas from McKenna that excited him, and, and one of them was around this idea of language, and, and I think this is worth, maybe you can help kind of uh, expand this a bit. McKenna insisted the world was made of language, not the thoughts of God, quarks, electromagnetic wave packets, planets, or stars, but language. He called this, quote, the primary fact that has been overlooked. And you used the word logos. And logos is also um, mm -hmm. what uh, Christian theologians um, refer to as, uh, you know, the, the, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word of God. And so there is this idea that mm. uh, language is an act of creation. And, um, you know, this, this is a massive topic. Um, but 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 how what? Yeah, I mean you get you can throw but, the Kabbalah in there and I everything. Think the yeah. The interesting thing about this book is, and this is probably worth uh, discussion too, is you have this book. What can literary people get out of this, who who aren't interested in in, in psychedelics particularly? And I and I'm wondering if you can talk about what is this idea that the world is made up of language? It's it's not a, a self-evident idea, and it's an actually. Even for very bright people, literary people, it's a challenging idea. But as you pointed out, it's critical to to this psychedelic experience, and particularly the McKenna's uh, uh, life, which which obviously this is huge for Talib. So, right. What is this idea that? 
Well, I'll tell yeah. you, with psych- at least with psychedelics, I, I know that it's it, it messes with your language, uh, with, the, with the, the brain's language center or something like that. It messes with the language. I mean, when you're, when you're really tripping hard, the language doesn't make sense. There's no, you know, there's, there's just no logos. It's, it's all fractally broken up into pieces that by themselves don't really make much sense in their totality, overwhelm you. Um, so you can't really use language in any kind of sensical way, um, at least on, on higher doses. On yeah. lower doses, I'm sure you can. Uh, um, but as far as the world being made of language, I mean, I'm very attracted to the idea. I frankly can't really yeah. explain it beyond what you've just d- d- described. But I do have something that I would like yeah. to sort of pick a bone with Lynn here. Is the is the fact that you know he's talking about language so much and literature? Right. I mean, he's a literary guy. I was going to read you something here. Um, uh, he, he yeah, here's a quote from Lynn. He called his book, and he's talking about himself in, in the third yeah. person in the last section of the book here. He called his book secondary, but sometimes he preferred viewing his life as secondary and his books and other writing, the selective downloads of his life, as primary. Um, so, you know, since college, when he began creating linguistic, shareable, fractal microcosms of his life in the form of short stories and poems, experience and literature have become increasingly symbiotic for him, a trend that made him curious about the future. So, you know, we, we are entwined with language. I don't know if it's the universe is made of language. It's kind of a, one of those statements that... Uh, is a little bit too over over generalized. Um, besides using the is of identity, the universe is language, meaning equals language. Which yeah. you know, I, I don't know, I don't know, frankly. Um, but my 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 bone with Lynn is that he he talks about literature and escaping into the imagination, you know, as, as McKenna kind of said, and um, he does not mention at all yeah. Finnegan's Wake which was McKenna's favorite book. McKenna has recordings about Finnegan's Wake that go on for hours and hours and hours. He was a wonderful interpreter of the wake. Of course, we're talking about James Joyce's uh, Finnegan's Wake, uh, in which the language itself is very fractal. And in fact, history is fractal, which Lynn talks about in his book. Uh, but nowhere does he mention Joyce or Finnegan's Wake. Uh, and um, that's something that I kind of wanted to ask him I guess during that author reading, yeah. but I never yeah. got around to it. And, and that's it. And uh, I'm hoping that he'll respond somehow yeah. <laughs> if he listens to our <laughs> to our yeah, podcast. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fantastic point. And, and I think as we talked about uh, when you were here, is that the uh, uh, Tim Leary, in particular, loved Joyce, and um, I think he had a uh-huh. copy of Ulysses uh, in prison with him, or maybe that was uh, Gravity's Rainbow by Pynchon. I'm not sure, but. But I know that um, yeah, Joyce was 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 almost like a, a second Bible to. Uh, well, to I, I tell you, to anybody to anybody that has basically an ounce of literary kind of uh, you know genes in them, or somebody who likes literature just a little bit, and also uh, has experienced psychedelics, uh, will at one point or another drift over to Finnegan's Wake because it's the. As, as a, a, I believe there's a famous quote that's the closest to LSD on the page that you can get. And, and you know, to, to um, make further connections with, with Joyce and psychedelics and the logos, I and mean, Joyce, of course, uh, suffered through the, the battle days of uh, Catholic Ireland and, and was edu- educated by the Jesuits. And this whole idea of language creating the world 
I mean, to me, you've got the prologue to the Gospel of St. John, and this is what it says. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so literally, in the beginning was the Word. And so, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's complete alignment between uh, a, a, a biblical literature and someone like uh, McKenna, in a sense. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because McKenna's uh, lectures and his sort of he had he had a very prophetic yeah. or prophet-like uh, appeal. You know, people would gather at his feet, and he would just, with that strange Irish lilting voice of his, would just charm them and hypnotize them, uh, and he would just go on in this stoned kind of monologue. And by the way, he was mostly stoned, <laughs> yeah. pretty much twenty-four-seven. Um, um, and he would just go on and, and just mesmerize people with language. Um, and you know, the ideas, of course, were the were the, you know the, the language expressed were were amazing, but it's also the way he expressed it, um, which again brings us back to Lin, because he also has a distinctive style, right? He yeah. a Tao Lin book cannot be mistaken for another book because it's, it's it's Tao Lin, it's his prose. Even this is not if in, even though this is nonfiction, it's still very recognizably Tao Lin book. Um, so he also has that you know that that the 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 logos charmer uh, kind of uh, approach to to things. He, he charms you a little bit. Uh, there's actually a little bit of humor in this book, which was absent. At least I didn't I didn't note any in in his you know in uh, Taipei. I mean, he really kind of enlivens up with these new chemicals that he's ingesting, and 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 begins to have awe again. He lost the the the, uh, the ability to feel awe about the universe and about his existence, and he's getting that back through psychedelics. I, I, I agree with you. And um, I, I felt a couple of times uh, when we saw him speak. Um, Clearly, he's not super comfortable speaking in front of uh, an audience. He probably has had a lot of practice at this point. I'm sure he's done the circuit many times. But there was a few times where he reads so deadpan that it's difficult to know whether he's just totally gripped out by anxiety or whether he's, he's kind of got his stage thing. And, and now he can almost start to play with it a little bit. He can say things you know, without any irony and kind of wink, wink. So you might mm -hmm. be onto something. There, there was some humor cracking through, right? Well, it's it's particularly evident in the last yeah, maybe, part of the yeah. book, which he he switches to the third person, and he goes he, he goes to visit Kathleen Harrison, yes. um, Terence McKenna's uh, you know, ex-wife, uh, who's still around. She does wonderful work with botanical dimension, dimensions, uh, you know, with the indigenous people, indigenous plants. Uh, I was just listening to one of her talks. She's just wonderful. But th this last last part of trip where he switches to the third person and goes to visit Kathleen Harrison in Occidental California. He goes to visit her garden, listen to some of her talks. She takes like a plant drawing class. And you can see, maybe it's partly because he switches to the third person. I think it adds yeah. to that. But it's, it's the lightest section, so to speak. It's the one that has more, more humor in it than the other sections. He, he lightens up a little bit. Um, and it's it's really is funny. It's funny in parts, you know. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that part. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, 
because previous to this this last section, he really gets into what I originally thought when I was reading it, yeah. kind of uh, hokum, kind of bogus science. Um, you know, because I'm I, I tend to be a little bit of a hardhead. Yes, when science is concerned, though I, yeah. I am aware that science is also not <laughs> far from perfect. Um, but he goes into the whole physical de degeneration of modern humans, and that <laughs> struck me a little bit as, you know, like what the hell is he talking about? You know, we seem to be better now in history than before. But, you know, having said that, I, I've yeah. since realized that he was, he's actually onto something. Because I completely coincidentally, without having... Maybe because I read this book and it somehow stuck in my my head. But uh, yeah. as I was telling you earlier, I yeah. was really fascinated by raw milk uh, for a long time, just just out of curiosity. And I finally was able to get some. And actually, I'm getting some on a regular basis now, and I'm very happy about it. It's it's a little miracle somebody <laughs> who lives in the middle of New York City can get uh, raw milk straight from the farm. Um, but uh, basically. I started researching raw milk, and I got onto this um, website of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Weston A. Price was a, a an American dentist who was active in the first half of the 20th century, and he, he has this book about physical de degeneration of modern humans uh, where he basically went to visit a bunch of um, you know, aboriginals, aboriginal people, like mm -hmm. um, you know, some villages in, in rural Switzerland, and he just traveled the world looking for people who were not exposed to the modern way of life. And he noted, and he looked into their mouths, because he was a dentist, and he was curious. And he noted that people who have um, indigenous diets, who are basically, you know, who stick to stuff from the farm, local stuff, whole foods, no processed foods, you know, obviously no McDonald's, all that kind of stuff. And they, to him, for the majority of these people, seemed to be very healthy, had no cavities, had perfect teeth, never need, needed any uh, braces or anything like that. Their, um, their center of their face was wider than modern, you know, more quote-unquote civilized humans. Um, and he made some deductions from those observations. And, and Taolin mentions this book. Which I, as I read it at first, I just kind of skimped over. But then I, when I got into it myself, I was like, "Wait a second, this wasn't this in Tao Lin's book." Um, and so it's a, kind of an interesting connection where, where what I thought at first was Tao Lin going off the deep end a little bit and and yes. and ranting about vaccines and how bad they are and glyphosate and stuff in the soil, and I was thinking, well, you know, it sounds it sounds true, but it sounds a little hokey as well. Uh, I am now. Uh, more towards the it's not as hokey as I thought uh, spectrum, you know, uh, because it does. I, I know that it's f just just for myself. I know it's that it's an anecdotal, but uh, you know, for the past month I've been basically drinking raw milk, a lot of raw milk, <laughs> on a daily basis, having raw milk cheeses, um, uh, a lot of fermented foods, and again, all this stuff with you know made uh, on a local farm in Pennsylvania that they ship directly to me. Um, and I've noticed, I've noticed a huge difference in my energy levels and just my outlook. On th and every meal is delicious, Rob. Every, my every bite is freaking delicious. It's ridiculous. I I've never eaten this like this before. I'm like I, well, I eat well, like the, the, I feel like I'm an emperor or a king, you know. Even though I'm a poor, a poor, uh, you know, well, the, guy uh, the in, in, in Queens, New York. Is, uh, <laughs> many members of the American Raw Milk Association listening, uh, we will accept advertising and. Uh, we will need a source of revenue to, to continue this podcast. Um, well, you've sold me, my friend. Right, there we right. Go. Um, we'll we'll, we'll take know, Jesus' one payment. One thing that I'm interested in is 
it's not just Taliban who's interested in psychedelics. You're hearing about um, with with combat veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, psychedelics is being used in some circles uh, to treat PTSD, which you know we're always hearing about now. And and you know you can make right. an argument, obviously, like politically, right. um, the civilization right now, the U.S. civilization is is in in turmoil. Um, what is it? You know, it, it, I think you can set it off with like, it, in the late 60s when Congress was trying to figure out why are people taking drugs, um, it seems unbelievable. They actually invited Allen Ginsberg to speak in front of uh, a congressional committee. They brought in all sorts of people, physicians, uh, clearly poets. They were trying to understand what's going on, right? These are the, the, the square congressman types uh, in the late 60s. And so they, they were kind of coming on to Allen Ginsberg and, and saying, what's going on? You know, what's up with heroin? What's this? And he turned it around and he basically said, I think what we should look at is what is so wrong with American society and culture that huge segments of young people want to zone out of it? And he kind of put it back on you know, the establishment saying, look inward. And so, mm -hmm. you know, What's going on now that, that psychedelics, because human beings will always look for, you know, they, they find problems, but they, they also look for help. And so, um, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, remember, it's a, it's a continuum, man. It's, it's, yes. you know, it's not like, you know, we had the yes. 60s and then it stopped and then the 70s and then it's, everything stopped. And it's a continuum. So, it, you know, things ebb and flow. But again, to, to put it back in the context of Tao Lin's book, um, he talks about the, you know, the, the sort of the, the goddess, the, the earlier religions, the, mm -hmm. the pre-Abrahamic pre religions um, were mostly yeah. goddess-oriented, mostly sort of female-oriented, um, as opposed to the more the later traditions and he calls the later traditions dominator uh models uh, and he actually mentions yeah. uh in this book the election of donald trump uh which is and he's, he calls him sort yeah. of the sort yeah, of the, the, the dominator model par, par excellence you know um so there's a, this there's this kind of um in the book, uh, there he talks about the, the sort of the resurgence of the goddess, and uh, I believe Diane Eisler is her name. Uh, wrote a very influential book in the I believe in the seventies or maybe early eighties about the, the sort of the the, the reemergence of the goddess types types of religion, um, and that's why that's why his book that this book trip is moves from Terence McKenna. Who's kind of a this logos, yes, yes. not not a dominator guy, but he's he's a he's a guy, he's a male, this male energy of trying to find out yes. what the hell's going on by, by hook or by crook, you know, taking heroic doses and and doing these these male kind of things, and he moves shifts this book, uh, the last third of it or so, is very female oriented, you know, with Kathleen Harrison, plants, soft things, uh, living things. Um, you know, and it's it's, it's it gives him hope. It, it, he starts you know drawing things. Uh, I saw on his Twitter account um, recently that he's been doing dot paintings yeah. while tripping. Uh, just just does it like you know thirty thousand dots during a trip or something like that, and they're quite beautiful beautiful uh, you know pieces of I guess art. Um, 
so so you can see in Tao Lin's mind how he moves away from this this kind of male uh, hierarchical uh, model uh, towards a, a more sort of like a flat hierarchy, not really a hierarchy, but you know more like a, 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 a mycelium, like a mushroom mycelium that just has doesn't really have roots, but it's got you know all these mycelia everywhere, and they all kind of connect. Um, and to a more female kind of perspective on things. And even mentions Taoism, which is a very female-oriented, or at least, you know, there's always female. There's always both things in Taoism. He talks about Taoism just a little bit, but, um, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, he's basically saying that his name Tao Lin is not from the word Tao. Oh, I, uh, it's a different kind of thing in Chinese that I, you know, that I, means I something think, else. Yeah, I mean, I think he um, but he, he was curious about the connection to Taoism and, and, and himself. Male to female going from the, the husband to the, the widow. I think it's a, a great observation. And, and she actually, uh, when he meets her, right. she dispels some of the public myths about McKenna that, you know, I think he said in a lecture, oh, you know, I one day just quit cannabis cold and didn't affect me. And, and so she actually tells Talin, you know, for that two months, he was an absolute bastard. And uh, he, he lied. And, and she said, look, he was brilliant, but he was absolutely selfish. Uh, he did whatever he wanted. Right. He was. Right. And and so yeah. He was yeah he was he was insufferable basically and I can relate to that as as somebody who's used cannabis uh, you know quite a lot in my life uh, I I can totally relate to that section and also something that he mentions that I think hasn't really been talked enough yeah. about and I, I this is actually one of the most exciting things that I found in this book for me personally because I've experienced it. Is is when you when you use cannabis on a daily basis for a long time, and then you suddenly stop. Well, first of all, what, what cannabis does is 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 uh, you don't remember your dreams. I don't know if the dreams are suppressed. If they're there, you just don't remember them. I'm not sure what exactly happens, but by most accounts of people who are you know heavy cannabis users, they don't remember their dreams. Now, I heard Tara Lind speak uh, uh, in a podcast actually. Uh, about uh, about this, he had an interesting theory that I really loved, which is what cannabis basically brings the the dream world into your daytime world, so yeah. that it kind of equalizes things. So you don't have that during the nighttime, but you do have that during the daytime. Uh, but my my point as far as the mechanic quitting quitting cannabis and being insufferable uh, is is that he also mentions this is that his dreams he had, suddenly his dream life became much more interesting when he quit. And that happened to me as well. And I've had really quite, I mean, I've never had this before or since for that matter. But, you know, I've had a period where I was, you know, using cannabis regularly. Then I stopped. And I, for two weeks, I, I lived 24-7. I was conscious, pretty much conscious 24-7. So when I would go to sleep, I would have these dreams that I remember very clearly. Um, and the dreams were very powerful. Some of them oh, uh, were... And what do you call it when you consciously control the dreams? Um, yes, I had very lucid dreams. One of them, which is probably the most memorable dream of my life, was one of flying. I became a bird. I willed myself to become a bird because I was like, why? I'm going to try flying since I'm conscious and I'm dreaming. Why not try flying? And I pretended to be a bird and I started flapping my wings. And I, the, the rush that I got lifting up off the ground, the physical sensation of being lifted up, was so real um, that it really transported me. It was I was in some sort of dream ecstasy. It was it was inc- 
incredible, I mean, unforgettable uh, dream of flying and, and, you know, various other things that would happen during the dreams. And, and I would remember them so clearly the next day. I would write them down. And and it was the most incredible yeah. two weeks of my life as far as uh, dreaming goes because, like I said, I didn't stop being conscious. It wasn't like, you know, oh, tomorrow's Monday, another day. I'll just, you know, I'll turn myself off and I'll yeah, wake up tomorrow and deal with tomorrow. No, I would just basically go to sleep expecting a wonderful show and being part of it and controlling it and seeing what happens in my subconscious yeah. whatnot and then i would wake up and have a different yeah. kind of experience you yeah. know and then i go back back to sleep and have a different kind of experience and that lasted for two weeks it was amazing and that's something that i don't really hear people talk about you know heavy cannabis users i don't i mean here and there maybe i've seen things re- reference to it uh, but uh, I give Thailand credit for mentioning yeah. this and, and, and noting that it's a very curious, uh, uh, you know, effect. Writers is, is a curious one. And, and I, I've always noticed that when I'm writing well and writing a lot and feeling really connected to writing, that um, uh, I, I get an impulse to start writing down my dreams. And once I do that, it seems to send some kind of uh, message to my subconscious that keep it coming. And, and there almost becomes a kind of symbiotic, the, the conscious world and the unconscious world start communicating more. Um, yeah. It's a habit I, I wish I could keep, um, and I, I tend to, I tend to get lazy, honestly. And if I, <laughs> I suppose that's, I suppose that's a different. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. Well, I, I just need to stop with the cannabis, and I'll be all right. <laughs> But you know, it's it's funny. It, yeah. You know, a lot of the people that I admire, um, uh, like you know, people like Richard Feynman, the scientist, the physicist, uh, he he also experimented with dreams. You know, he he at one point he was fascinated with dreams. He kept a notebook and he would wake himself up and write them down. Uh, and of course, he was also a cannabis user as well. Um, I'm not sure how those those are connected there, but um, so you know, it's it's. It, it's 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 a, this unknown part of ourselves that happens to us to everybody nightly, whether we remember or not. Yeah. Uh, and yet, uh, it's so hard to bring back. Kind of like yeah. with a psychedelic experience, it's so hard to bring back to your conscious awareness and and to express it in language. Uh, like what I just told you about, you know, flying as a bird, was maybe, you know, five percent of the actual intensity of the experience. I, I conveyed the intensity in words, but the, the intensity itself is, you can't convey that, you know, in words. Um, so again, I give Taolin props for trying over and over again. He got, he's got some quite funny descriptions of his DMT trips. And DMT is a very, very powerful psychedelic, uh, probably the most powerful psychedelic that we know of. Um, it's also very short-lasting. It's called a businessman's LSD because you can, you know, you can smoke it and then in 20 minutes you can go back to work. Um, so he keeps on trying to describe them, and this book is all about describing them and coming to terms with what that what it means, what 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 the experience yeah. means. And by the way, before we just kind of totally leave this uh, and 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 end our podcast, I just want to mention something. That I read just this morning, uh, uh, I believe on Eon magazine, um, that uh, this this writer argues that we, you know, the the Western experience of psychedelics is so different from the indigenous peoples' uh, experience of psychedelics. They're totally different um, ontological contexts, uh, where the indigenous people are viewing, let's say, an ayahuasca trip as more of a 
uh, cleansing off the bad spirits and removing the the bad juju uh, healing things you know but but more like literally sorcery I mean literary magic it's mm-hmm. it's 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 magic as as with Westerners we view it more I guess uh, through a more scientific lens and a more personal lens where we think it all relates to our lives and what we did you know well what we didn't do so well what's making us sad what's not it's all like you know me 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 centered ego 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 even though of course psychedelics are, are supposedly famous for for bursting that bubble but but we still have that context that that western uh, you know industrialized um, logocentric uh, ontology where we always try to filter things through our rationality um, so it's a very different experience for you know, for us and for the indigenous people, and it's still, I think, I think as we, as we kind of, we're going to try to close this. I guess we're going on for a while. Uh, what I want people to understand is that first of all, this book is really good. It's very good, if, especially if you don't know about Terence McKenna. It's very good if you are familiar with Terence McKenna because it kind of refreshes your knowledge of 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 his his stuff. Thank you, Roman. Uh, we have to end it there. We've run out of time. Uh, Just reminding you, this was the Feeling Bookish podcast, and we were talking about the new book by Tao Lin. Uh, My name is Robert Fay in Oregon, and you can follow me at RobertFay1 on Twitter. And Roman Sivkin is in New York City, and you can catch all his literary tweets at ZenJew. Well, that's it. Thanks so much, and please tune in next time. Thanks a lot.